0: So good to see everybody in church on this beautiful—is it not beautiful—Easter Sunday. And you can tell in the second service we are going to have a funeral because right there is the casket. No, I'm just kidding. We are going to have a baptism in the second service. We're really excited about those who will be receiving water baptism today. We're just really glad y'all came to church today at the bridge. And um, we want you to just open your heart. And I hope the music and the videos and the testimonies. Uh, Pastor Andy did such a good job leading us in communion today. And I hope your heart's already open because God wants to say some things to you. God wants to speak to you. He loves you. And you might not even be sure where you stand on His existence. You're just here because it's Easter and somebody pestered the daylights out of you about coming, so you came. Hey, man, thanks. I appreciate that. But seriously, open open your heart and see if God would speak to you today. See if God would say something to you. In our sermon series leading up to today, we called that sermon series At the Cross We've been talking about specific people who were at the cross on the day Jesus was crucified. We've been talking not only about people who were there, but mindsets that were there, attitudes that were there, ways of thinking, perceptions that were in attendance at the trial and the humiliation and the torture and the murder of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our text has been from Matthew 27. Matthew 27 is a chapter you need to read often because it reminds you of God's gift to us. He gave his life for us. We discovered in verse 1 that self-righteousness was there. In verse 3, we saw that hypocrisy was at the cross. In verses 11 through 26, we saw that cowardice was at the cross. In verses twenty. Through 21 of Matthew 27, we saw that ignorance was at the cross. In verse 36, we saw that indifference was there that day at the cross. And in verses 39 through 43, we saw that skepticism or cynicism was at the cross. They were all there. We were there at the cross when Jesus died we were not there in our human flesh, but we were there in the sense that it was our sin that he died for. It was our sin, and there had to be a payment for that sin, and really, we couldn't pay it. We couldn't pay the debt we owed. Y'all remember those old songs way back in church? Jesus paid it all, and those songs about the ransom for our sin? Jesus paid that ransom on the cross of Calvary. He paid for your sin and he paid for mine. What I want you to notice today on this Easter Sunday is one more attitude, one more mindset, one more perception that was at the cross that day and it was the mindset of cruelty. I'm not going to try to make you feel good today. You know, Easter is the day to be happy, and when this sermon ends, we will talk about the best part of Easter, and that is the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. But the sermon that I'm going to give you today, I want you to know I'm not going to try to bring it in a way to make you feel good. I want you to understand as much as is possible what Jesus did for you. I want you to understand as much as possible the price he paid for hardness Hardison's sin and for your sin. The sin of all mankind, past, present, on that very day and future, Jesus paid it for us. Let's go to the Word of God, Matthew 27, and let's begin with verse 27 and just read a few words here. Then he released Barabbas. He being Pilate, the judge, the governor. He released Pilate, uh, or he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged or whipped, he handed him Jesus over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the Praetorium, and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him, probably about six hundred soldiers. They stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put, on his, and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. As they were coming out, they found a man of serene named Simon whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head... They put up the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Many years ago, a writer of old in the mid-1800s, Frederick Farrar wrote a book titled Life of Christ. I'd like to read a short passage from that book as a setting for our understanding of today's message And of course, back in that day, they wrote a little differently than they do now. So just follow me. Farrar writes, A death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of the horrible and ghastly. Dizziness, cramp, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, tetanus, shame, Publicity of shame, long continuous of torment, horror, the horror of anticipating what would come, mortification of untended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point which would give to the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposure gradually gangrened. The arteries, especially at the head and stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pain of a burning and raging thirst. And all these physical complications caused an internal anxiety which made the prospect of death itself the unknown enemy at whose approach man usually shudders most bear the aspect of a delicious and exquisite release. When you read these words by Farrar, one thing is clear about the process of crucifixion. When a person was crucified, no one involved in crucifying a person was concerned with a quick, painless death. No one was concerned with the preservation of any measure of human dignity. The crucifiers actually desired the opposite. They sought an agonizing torture of complete humiliation that exceeds any other design for death that man has ever invented. And such was the torture that our Lord Jesus Christ endured for us. The crucifixion of Jesus at the cross is the pinnacle of the plan of God. The crucifixion of Jesus on the cross demonstrates God's grace. It demonstrates God's mercy and God's goodness and God's kindness and God's love like no other event in history ever can. The single greatest manifestation of God's love and grace is seen on the cross. But that message is not Matthew's purpose. Matthew describes the crucifixion not from the standpoint of the goodness of God, but from the standpoint of the wickedness of men. The focus of Matthew is on how evil man is, how evil men are. And when I use the word men, I don't use that in a gender sense. I use it in the sense of humanity, humans. The focus of Matthew is on the wickedness of man. And how much the death of Jesus Christ demonstrates that wickedness, the wickedness of the human heart. Jeremiah talked about it in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. You remember that verse? Many of you can probably quote that. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The crucifixion is the single greatest proof of the truth of that statement. Now, it was not as if wickedness had not appeared in the life of Jesus before the cross, Why, wickedness tried to kill him at his birth, you remember? Wickedness tried to discredit his teaching. Wickedness tried to stop his miracles. Wickedness secured his condemnation to death by violating every standard of justice. Wickedness betrayed him. Wickedness put the hypocrite's kiss on his cheek. Wickedness has arrested him and framed him. Wickedness slapped him. Wickedness punched him. Wickedness spit on him. Wickedness mocked him and beat him. Wickedness has done all of this, but it is not finished with all it intends to do to Jesus. Wickedness eventually killed him because death is the masterwork of wickedness. In the crucifixion of Jesus, We see two things happening, the fulfillment of the plan of God for the redemption of man, the gracious plan, the loving, kind plan of God toward us. And the other thing we see is the supreme effort of evil to utterly destroy the Lord Jesus. Isn't it interesting that it wasn't enough to just let Jesus die the humiliating and unbelievably painful death of the cross? Evil wouldn't settle for that until Jesus breathed his last breath. He was mocked right to the end. He was scorned right to the end. He was accused of being a fraud and a fake and a liar right up to the time of his last breath. His enemies viewed his death as a disappointment because they wanted it to last longer. It didn't last long enough. They wished they could have prolonged his suffering. They wish they could have prolonged His pain. The vicious words and deeds of all who surrounded the cross absolutely beg language to describe it. And we ought to go away from this service today full of thanksgiving. We ought to walk out of this building today full of gratitude. In November... We'll celebrate Thanksgiving. Let me tell you, you ought to read Matthew 27 and celebrate Thanksgiving every day. Jesus paid it all, He did it for us. It begins with the scourging. He's been tied to a post by His hands. And the rope that ties his hands is thrown through a metal loop at the top of a pole. And he is pulled until his feet are suspended off the ground so that his body is fully stretched. Two Roman soldiers, one on each side have wooden handles in their hand to which are attached strips of leather hanging down and attached to the end of each strip of leather are bits of rock and bone and metal, all of them carefully filed down to the sharpness of a knife's edge. And these two soldiers proceed to lash and lacerate the body of the Lord Jesus Christ until blood covers him and his inner parts are made visible. Strips of flesh hang from his body. His face has been slapped and punched repeatedly until it is swollen and bruised. He is spit on until his face is totally covered. His flesh is torn and he bleeds profusely from the shoulders down. The Romans know that he claims to be a king. Because the people are screaming it. He says he is a king. Jesus is viewed by everyone as a pathetic fake, a fraud. The Romans think that maybe he's mentally deranged or worthy of this mockery in some way. Through all of this, Jesus never says a single word. They question his intelligence, his sanity. They're cold, they're indifferent, they're ignorant. They don't understand who he is. There's a song we sing at Christmas, and it says, Sweet little Jesus child, we didn't know who you were. You remember that song? They didn't know who he was. They really didn't understand who he was. Then they stripped him. Now, I know when you see pictures of Jesus on the cross, um, they have the linen cloth around his waist and and they almost have him looking like he's not doing so bad, you know. That's not how it was. They stripped him naked. And the Romans loved to do this because the Romans hated Jews in general and they thoroughly enjoyed humiliating and shaming Jesus as a representative of the Jews. There's no concern for his suffering, no interest in assisting his wounds. There's no sense of justice at all. They have been trained for torture and they have been trained ultimately to kill and they are without kindness and sympathy. Now when Jesus was scourged, Obviously, he was naked, and after the scourging was over, they put back on him his inner seamless garment, his inner robe, and we can only imagine the pain this would cause, a rough cloth put over open wounds. And he claimed to be a king, so they mocked him further by putting a a purple robe on him, a a color that represented royalty, and they braided a crown of thorns, and this was intended to be a cheap and painful imitation of the royal wreath that was on every coin with the image of Caesar. They put it on his head, the thorns piercing his brow and now streams of blood begin to run down and mingle with the rest of the blood on his body and all of this makes Jesus look ridiculous to them as they laugh. To them, he is a joke. He is bloody now from head to foot. His face is unrecognizable. He's hardly human. His face is distorted It's distorted by the pain of emotion. It's distorted by the pain of spiritual anguish because Jesus is bearing upon him all of the sin... Mine and yours, all of that is on him. As I said earlier, past, present, and future, it's bearing down on him. He is distorted now by the bruises and the swollenness and the spit mixed with blood and the dust and dirt of the day. He is a scene of ugliness. To mock him further, they put a reed in his hand, and this was to be his scepter since he is a king they put it in his right hand to depict and mock his authority, his sovereignty. And there he is with a crown of thorns and a robe of scarlet and a scepter as a reed. And then they bowed down on their knees before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they carried... Owned their little game further by taking the reed out of his right hand. Which was actually not some flimsy reed like you would think of a fishing pole reed. But more of a bamboo um, pole. It was very heavy and strong. And the Bible says they took it out of his right hand. And they repeatedly struck him on the head with it. Driving the crown of thorns down. Upon him, unbearable pain. And though he endures it all, he still doesn't speak, doesn't say a thing. He offers no resistance. He stands in obedience to his Father, willing to suffer for sinners. To suffer not only the death on the cross, but everything that came before it. He's determined to fulfill his calling. And silently, he endured it. He endured it all. Humiliation, agony, pain. Again, beyond our comprehension. After the mock trial, they put his own clothing back on him again and led him to be crucified. And crucifixion was the most terrible way to die. And in the condition Jesus was in, he still carried his cross on his back. Um... Most writers, most theologians agree that it weighed anywhere from 100 to possibly 200 pounds. He's got it on his back. His blood is draining. No sleep. He's been betrayed by Judas. The defection of his disciples. He's been through the trials and watched the injustice and mockery of it. He's endured the beatings and the scourgings. He's taken all of his strength. And finally, he comes to a place where he cannot lift the cross. And a man is called out of the crowd. You know this story. And he's compelled to bear the cross. And they come to Golgotha, which is a place that means um, uh, heel, that means the place of the skull. And if you go there today and you look at that, you can see... That, that mountain, that area, it actually does. The form of the rocks looks like a skull. And they give him something to drink. It has vinegar in it. Mark says that the bitter um, uh, drink that they gave him was had myrrh. It was myrrh, and myrrh was a kind of vegetable narcotic that was put into the wine as a way to, to calm down the person they were going to crucify and the Bible says Jesus tasted it but he wouldn't swallow it he refused to have any of his senses dulled he was set on going to the cross and he was set on enduring the full pain of everything for you for me this is what sin cost and then it happened they crucified him they're at his feet gambling to see who gets his clothing The cross is laid down on the ground. The victim would be placed on the cross. First, his feet would be extended out, his toes pulled down, and then a large nail would be driven through the arc of one foot and then the arc of the other foot. And then his hands would be extended, allowing his knees to flex And there would be great nails driven through his wrist just below the bottom part of his hand into the heel of his hand because that's the place where it would hold best. We see the nail scars often pictured here in the palm. But the palm is actually considered to be from the elbow to the end of the fingers. And they would nail here because it wouldn't hold the body if they nailed it in what we consider to be the palm. Once the victim was nailed there, the cross would be picked up and dropped into a hole. And when it hit the bottom, it would rip and tear the flesh and there would be an explosion of pain. And the victim is now crucified. He's not dead yet, but he he has been crucified. Slowly, he would begin to sag down. Gradually, the weight would be placed on the nails, running through his wrist, excruciating, fiery pain would shoot through his arms. Pressure put on the median nerves would be beyond the ability to endure. So to relieve the pain, he would then push up with his feet. And the same thing would happen an hour after hour. This wrenching, twisting torment of the body back and forth on the cross. Back and forth trying to relieve one and then trying to relieve the other. The hands and then the feet. And I would encourage you to read Dr. C. Truman Davis who is a physician who writes about this. And I want to quote From an article he wrote, he says, At this point, another phenomenon occurred as the arms fatigued, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, nodding them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. And when these cramps come... Uh, uh, With these cramps come the inability to push himself upward, hanging by his arms. The pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but it can't be exhaled out of the lungs. So Jesus fights to raise himself up just to get one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and the bloodstream and the cramps subside. He would gasp short breaths of air, hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down the rough timber a deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium, which is that um, sack of fluid that surrounds your heart that serves as a, as a um, shock absorber, slowly fills with fluid and blood mixed together and begins to compress the heart and this leads to death. And there are many more details and there are many things that are said and we don't have time to go into all of that today, but I wanted to just walk through today, and I don't usually stick this close to my notes, but I, I wanted to make sure I covered this thoroughly, and I have many sources for my message today. But I want you to see, because I know, and I'm not picking on you, and I'm not trying to make you feel bad in the sense that um, I'm just here to put guilt on you, but I know. A lot of you who are here today stay away from this message. You stay away from it. You don't like it. You don't want to hear it. You don't want to deal with it. You don't want to watch movies about it. You don't want to think about it. But today, I wanted you to think about it. I wanted you to think about what he did for you. Now, today is the day of your salvation. Now is the time, the Bible says. There's no time better than right now to make your commitment to Him. But if the Lord gives you more time, and we don't know what a day holds, do we? We don't know. But if the Lord gives you more time, I wanted you to have this in your mind. I hope it's something you can't shake, you can't push aside, Because I want you to know that when you are ready, he is ready. He is ready. He's ready today. And I hope people today in this service will decide to follow him and become one of his disciples. Jesus died for you. He died for our sin. On the following Sunday, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb of Jesus to find or to finish anointing him. Because uh, they had to get... Uh, him into the tomb in a hurry. She sees that the tomb is open and thinking someone has stolen the body of the Lord. You know the story of how she runs to report this to the disciples. Peter and John hear it. Peter, you know his personality. He's, man, out the door. He takes off. And then John, who is the more thoughtful one, um, is coming behind. When they arrive, they see that the burial clothes of Jesus are there. And he is not there because he has risen from the dead. I love the line when the angel asks those who have come to anoint Jesus' body because that's what they did back then for the dead. That the angel says, why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here. He's alive. See, the crucifixion of Jesus is absolutely essential because the price for our sin had to be paid, but it is that next major act of Jesus when he rose from the dead that causes us to know that if we embrace him, not if we tip our hat to him, not if we say good things about him, not if we say, oh, he was a good teacher, a good philosopher, But if we embrace him as our Savior, if we embrace him as the Lord, if we embrace him as God in the flesh and as our Savior, then he he forgives us of our sin. He washes away our sin because of all that blood he shed on the cross of Calvary for us. And he puts into us resurrection life so that we will never die if we embrace him as Savior and Lord, if we believe. That's the Easter message. He gave his life, and then he took it back again. You remember how Jesus said at the home of Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That's it. That's the gospel. That's the message you need to hear. Do you believe he rose from the dead? Do you believe he can give you eternal life? Do you believe he could cause you to rise from death to life? That's what this baptism is. Here at the bridge, um, when it comes to baptism, we don't mess around, we put you under. (laughs) Till you say tithe, (laughs) we put you under. Because that is a picture of what? Death. And then we, this is the good part, we pull you out. And that is a picture of what? Resurrection into a new life in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus can conquer death for you personally? He said, because I live, you shall live also. Pastor, how can I? have this life Jesus gives. Here's what Paul said. He said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Now, that's not an intellectual faith. It is intellectual. It is the mind, but it is a heart faith. It is a a faith that says, Lord, I give you my life. Not that I just believe in the historical facts, but I surrender, Lord, you to you. I surrender my life to you. You believe Jesus raised himself from the dead? God raised Jesus from the dead? Then confess Jesus as Lord, and you'll be saved. And then Easter won't just be a day. It'll be a new way of life for you. Let's all stand.